This is the Padre Peregrino podcast. Theology from a wandering priest where you can learn scripture from the fathers and traditional catechisms for free. Join Father David Nix here for shows on church reform and world politics, all from the point of view of apostolic Catholicism, the original founded by Christ. This is VLX number 143. Heaven and earth will pass away. We are in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 35. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, your Patristic Bible study, and Ignatian prayer series online. God give you his peace, and omni patri sit fidi, speedy tu santi, amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In omni patri sit fidi, speedy tu santi, amen. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you will know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Just a few announcements today. One, you might notice the sound is a little bit different. My microphone broke, so I'm just using some cheap headphones. Sound's going to be a little bit different today, but hopefully it gets better in the future. Also, I'm going to switch the release date for VLX and RCT both to Mondays. So RCT and VLX, these two catechetical sessions, those will be released on Monday. And then if I start doing more interviews or TCE or political ones, Those are going to be released on Wednesdays. If I restart the Sunday Sermon Series, that'll be on Saturdays. Oh, and one other quick note before we start. I use the English Standard Version, which is pretty much the same as the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Most of you are using the Dewey Reams Bible. I don't think one of those is morally better than the other. My only problem with the Dewey Reams Bible, even though it is much more Catholic in its outlook, my only problem with the Dewey Reams Bible is it's antiquated partly because... They often did a transliteration from the Latin to the English instead of a translation. Now, I'm not saying the ESV that I use is perfect, but it's a little less antiquated, and I find the ESV or the RSV to be a much better balance between formal equivalence of translation and dynamic equivalence on translation. That's always the thing that you have to do when you balance uh, when you do a translation is you have to balance formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. So. Hopefully those of you who are using the Dewey Reams Bible, which I, again I think is most of you, you're at least able to walk away and still study the Greek and the Latin that I give you. Bring this to your own mental prayer, whether that's the apophatic way or the cataphatic way, and still study what I say even though I'm using a little bit different translation than most of you. And now let's look at today. We are in Matthew 24. As you know, we are a few days before the Passion and Jesus is telling us what to look for at the end of the world. We're going to hear Father Lapide and the Church Fathers tell us later today, one reason he doesn't want us to know is so that we always stay vigilant, as we've mentioned before, so that you stay vigilant in your own souls to stay in sanctifying grace. Now, because we've been looking so much at our 
at our Lord's words, and I admit I've been applying this a lot to current church politics, we have been staying away from Ignatian prayer. It's sort of hard to do Ignatian prayer, even in happier times in church history, on just just our Lord's words and parables. But today, uh, I am going to reintegrate that. And of course, we should be a lot heavier on the Ignatian imaginative way of prayer as we start our Lord's Passion. So again, we are in Matthew chapter 24. First verse for today is verse 29. And you're going to notice this refers to the general judgment, which we've been covering in the RCT series. And our Lord Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, one question some of you might have out there is, is this speaking spiritually or physically? Well, Father Lapide points out that this is, first of all, physical. He says, To the sad and afflicted, all things seem to be sad and afflicted. Moreover, the disaster in each of these cities was the prelude and type for the future disasters at the end of the world, when in fact the sun, the moon, and the stars literally shall be darkened, But it also applies to the spiritual. Uh, St. Augustine says, The sun, that is the church, capital C, church. Again, this is St. Augustine. The sun, that is the church, shall be darkened. Talking about what happens right before the end of the world. The, The sun, that is the church, shall be darkened because in those tremendous tribulations and temptations which shall be in the end of the world, many who had seemed as bright and as firm as the sun and the stars shall fall away from the faith and a state of grace. So what St. Augustine is saying is right before Jesus returns, many people who seemed right before that to be very solid in their faith will turn away from the Catholic faith. And this is also what we covered in the uh, Roman Catechism of Trent. There would be a great turning away of the Catholic faith or away from the Catholic faith by many Catholics, while at the same time, many other Catholics who are stronger in their faith are being martyred. Now, this brings up an interesting topic because a lot of times if you talk to a modernist Catholic, they are going to point out that Scripture often has figurative language. That's true, but it's not an either-or. The traditional Catholic view of Scripture is you should always hold the literal and the scriptural. They're both true. In fact, you should really hold that every chapter of the Bible, even if it has a spiritual side to it, that is an analogical or an anagogical side or interpretation, that doesn't detach it from the literal. This is what uh, Pope Benedict XV wrote around 1920 in Spiritus Paracletus. He says, St. Jerome then goes on to say that all interpretation rests on the literal sense and that we are not to think that there is no literal sense merely because a thing is said metaphorically, for the history itself is often presented in metaphorical dress and described figuratively. That's Spiritus Paracletus. So in other words, what he's saying is just because there might be something metaphorical in the Old Testament pointing to the New Testament or something metaphorical in, say, the book of the Apocalypse pointing to the end of the world or, you know, referring to angels as stars, that doesn't mean that the stars aren't stars literally. So listen again, the history itself is often presented in metaphorical dress and described figuratively. So we as Catholics should hold that Jonah was literally in the belly of a whale for three days, even though that also was a prelude to point to Christ being in the tomb for three days. Both of those are literal, and both of them have uh, spiritual import in our lives too. Then we have these words from verse 29 again, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now there are a lot more traditionalists today than probably 20 years ago who are geocentrists. I'm I'm not going to actually jump into that debate, so don't hold your breath for that. 
but many people will say, well, if you look at something saying the sun is rising, that means the sun is actually moving. Other people say, no, because things can actually be written in a way that is poetic, even though there's literally something happening. Well, you might be surprised to hear that there are even some church fathers who take the latter. Father Lapide says that for Holy Scripture often speaks of things not as they are in themselves, but as they seem and appear unto men. Thus says St. Jerome, stars, that is comets, comets and such like bodies which are formed in the atmosphere shall fall upon the earth. This may be gathered from Joel 2, chapter 30. So I'm not taking a side on the geocentric thing, but I can say that when somebody says the sun rise, rises, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, you believe the sun is moving. And I know some traditionalists will push back against that, but we just heard Father Lapide quote St. Jerome, a 4th century saint, saying that the Bible can even write things just as they appear or seem unto men. But then this notion of the stars falling from heaven, there's a lot of modernists that would say, oh, everyone back 500 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, they were stupid. They didn't know the stars couldn't move. They must be talking about comets. But Father Lapidus says, for as to the visible stars, they are larger than our whole earth and cannot there fall upon it. Therefore, these people in the ancient times knew that stars are bigger than earth. And remember what we just read from Father Lapide. He says, stars, that is comets and such like bodies, which are forming the atmosphere, these are the things that can actually fall upon the earth. So we have a difference of opinion here. Some of the church fathers are saying that these will be angels falling or that these are angels that have fallen because we have the reference to powers. And then other people think that this will be comets. And this is an example of maybe not so much disagreement as you should just kind of take all of these opinions as you bring all of this to prayer and study. On the other hand, don't get too spiritual about all of this because we know when Christ returns at the general judgment, we know that heaven and earth will burn. We know that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. But before that new heavens and a new earth, when you look up at the sky, it's really going to seem like everything is falling apart and being destroyed. We read this in Father Lapide. The meaning is that at the end of the world, the very great and very strong stars of heaven shall change their motions, appearances, influences, and in consequence, everything upon earth shall be in per perturbation. So that almost implies we're not even talking comets. We might even see stars themselves moving. And in consequence, everything upon earth shall be in perturbation, so that the world shall be shaken by unwanted movements, U-N-W-O-N-T-E-D. The sea shall overflow, and the atmosphere shall be troubled with clouds, comets, thunderbolts, meteors, and whirlwinds, so that all things will seem to be utterly in confusion. Then he gives some uh, Hebrew words here, saying it means that by the powers of heaven being shaken, he says that in Greek that is dunamis, and in Hebrew that's gibberoth, which means the fortifications or supports. It means, Father Lapide says, that at the end of the world, the whole heaven shall be shaken, wrenched from their poles and hinges so that they will seem to fall down, so as to strike terror into the wicked. He looks at uh, Job chapter 26, the pillars of heaven tremble and dread at his beck. Isaiah 34 says, and all the host of the heaven shall pine away, and the heaven shall be folded together as a book, and all their hosts, that is, all their stars, shall fall down. And then he quotes St. Bede, who looks at Luke chapter 21. St. Bede says, As when trees are shaken to their fall, they are wont or likely to show premonitions of the coming crash. So likewise, when the end of the world approaches, shall the elements nod and tremble as though they were in fear. So we really will see physical things on earth and in the heavens, pretty much everything falling apart 
when Christ comes to save his own. And of course, we never want to have presumption to believe that we're automatically saved just because we're traditional Catholics or anything like that. But we also understand that we should have a great hope in Christ's return. We covered in RCT recently that as a child being at home, maybe his dad's been gone for a week, is excited when his father returns. So also, and this was basically taken from the Roman Catechism of Trent, those who are living in grace or trying to live in grace, those who are living for Christ in the Catholic Church, when Jesus returns, even though all these things in the heavens will seem terrifying to the nations who aren't following Christ, to the individuals who aren't following Christ, for those of us who are seeking Christ, trying to live in grace, it actually should be a time of excitement and joy. So for the Ignatian imagination section today, I'm going to ask you to picture yourself at your current home. You step outside onto the front lawn, and for the imagination section, we're actually going to look at Father Lapide, something we usually don't do, but we're going to look at his quotes of what the fathers say, and I understand you want to have a holy fear of God and the end of the world, but I also think you should have an excitement and a joy for the glorious return of Jesus. So literally picture yourself on the front yard. Maybe you're playing with your grand, your kids or your grandkids in the front yard. And then we're going to see the sign of the cross in the air. And as you are in the front yard playing with your kids or your grandkids, we have verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. What is this sign of the Son of Man? Father Lapide writes, You will ask, what is the sign of the Son of Man? That is to say, of Christ incarnate. I answer, it is the cross. This is indeed a sign because it is the standard of Christ and the cause of the victory of believers. But to the unbelievers and the impious of old, it was a scandal. So too on the day of judgment, it will be their condemnation and their torment. Thus says St. John Chrysostom and St. Jerome. Yes, the church herself gives this meaning her sanction. When she sings in the office for the feast of the Holy Cross, the sign of the cross shall be in heaven when the Lord shall come to judgment. So again, imagine you're in the front yard playing with your kids or your grandkids, and before all the pillars of heaven tremble and are shaken, you see this giant sign of the cross in the air. That's how you know it's close. Father Lapide says, There are three reasons why the cross shall appear. First, to signify that Christ, by the cross, has merited this judicial power and glory. Second, to show that Christ was crucified for the salvation of all men, and that therefore... They are ungrateful and without excuse who have neglected so great a grace and love. And thirdly, to show that all the worshipers of Christ crucified, and thirdly, to show that all the worshipers of Christ crucified shall be then exalted with him to heaven, and all who hate and despise him cast down to hell. From this saying of Christ, therefore, it is extremely probable that the actual cross on which he was crucified shall appear in heaven on the day of judgment for the consolation of the saints who have been saved by it and so have striven during their lives by patience and self-denial to conform themselves to Christ crucified, and for the condemnation and reprobation of the wicked who have despised the cross of Christ, and who have ungratefully preferred their pleasures to the cross and self-mortification. This is the opinion of St. John Chrysostom. But there's a little difference of opinion in some of the church fathers, and Father Lapide points to St. Anselm, who says that at the day of judgment it will not be the actual cross of Christ, which will appear in the air, but a symbol or image of it, formed and depicted by the angels. I picture something enormous and red in the sky. I don't know what it's going to be, but either way, you could still do this in the imaginative way of prayer. Moreover, St. John Chrysostom and St. Augustine and St. Cyril teach that this standard of the cross 
will be borne by the angels before the face of Christ the judge, coming down to judgment as a trophy of victory and a royal banner of supreme power and dignity. So this should strike terror in you, the level of majesty with which Christ will return. But if you've lived for him, it will also be a moment of glory for you. Lastly, at that time, the sign of the cross shall appear on the foreheads of all the elect, according to what is said in Apocalypse 7.3, till we sign the servants of our God in their foreheads, as well as Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4. And then listen to this absolutely stunning description by St. Augustine of this day, this day of Christ's return. Hast thou considered how great is the virtue of this sign of the cross? The sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, but the cross shall shine and shall obscure the heavenly luminaries. When the stars shall fall, it alone shall send forth radiance, that thou mayst learn how the cross is more luminous than the moon and more glorious than the sun, because illuminated by the brilliance of divine light, it shall surpass their splendor. For just as when a king enters into a city, his soldiers go before him, bearing upon their shoulders the royal arms and standards and all the pomp of military array to proclaim the monarch's entry, so that when the Lord descends from heaven, the angel hosts shall go before him, bearing upon their lofty shoulders the sign, which is the ensign of triumph, to announce to the inhabitants of earth the divine entrance of the heavenly king. So again, picture yourself on your front lawn at 9 a.m. The sun is out, playing with your kids or grandkids. Everything goes absolutely dark. Then you see thousands of glorious angels descending from heaven, and then an enormous cross from one end of the sky to the other. I picture it red. I don't know how you picture it in your prayer. As the angels come down, this dark sky at 9 a.m. when it should be bright, everything is dark, and then you see the sign of the cross, this red cross from one end of the sky to the other, illuminating all of the darkness of the night, that night that exists at 9 a.m. It truly will be this extraordinary at Christ's return. And I'm not saying I know that I'm going to be saved, but I'm excited for this day. But many or most of the people on the planet will not be excited for that day. How do we know that? Because our Lord Jesus himself just said in verse 30, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That right there gets rid of this ridiculous von Balthasar idea that most people will be saved or all people will be saved, as he says. Why do you think all tribes of the earth will be mourning? Because they didn't think this day of the cross would come. That's going to be a day of conviction to them. And this is unanimous among almost all the fathers, certainly the ones with ST in front of their names, Let's see what the saints have to say about this line, Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. First of all, Father Lapide says, That is, many of every tribe, that is, all the reprobate and the damned shall mourn, because they have neglected their salvation, which cost Christ so dearly that he was crucified. Notice right there, we covered this in the last RCT. Jesus did die for those who reject him. And they're going to see, in the sign of the cross in the heavens, that cross which cost Christ so dearly. But the elect will rejoice and sing because they will see that they have been saved and blessed by the cross. St. Augustine gives the cause of this weeping of the reprobate or those who at that moment know they're not saved. St. Augustine says, Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn because they shall see their accuser, that is the cross itself. And at the sight of this reprover, they shall acknowledge their sin. Too late and in vain shall they confess their impious blindness. And you marvel that when Christ comes, he will bring his cross, since he will show his wounds also? Question mark. And that was in there literally too late. I added the exclamation mark, but that was literally St. Augustine. Too late, and in vain shall they confess their impious blindness. St. John Chrysostom adds these stunning lines, Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, because having seen the cross, they shall perceive that they gain nothing by his death, and that they crucified him 
who ought to be adored. And then St. Jerome points out that tribes of the earth means literally of the earth, not of the heavens. These are people who lived earthly lives because St. Jerome says, Rightly does Christ say tribes of the earth, for they shall mourn who have no citizenship in heaven, but whose names are written in the earth. Another ancient writer writes that Christ will then reprove the wicked in this way. For your sakes I became man, was bound, mocked, beaten, and crucified. Where is the fruit of all my sufferings? Behold the price of my blood, which I paid for the redemption of your souls. Where is your service, which you owe me at the price of my blood? I valued you above my own glory, when being God I appeared in fashion of a man, and yet you accounted me of less worth than any of your possessions, for you loved every vile thing upon earth more than my justice and faith. This is again the accusation that people will understand in their hearts, their minds, every cell in their body when they see this cross in the air, when they see Christ return, they will know they lived for the wrong things on earth. And then let's look at the second half of verse 30. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven. You might remember that scene in the Passion of the Christ when Jesus admits he is the Son of Man. Who will come on the clouds, quoting Daniel, that is when the high priest rips his garments because he knows at that moment Christ just admitted he is God. And, of course, in the Old Testament, God always comes on clouds. Father Lapide writes that because the cloud is the seat as well as the vehicle and cover of Christ's glory, Christ will return on that. Hence, constantly in the Old Testament, God appeared to Moses and the prophets in a cloud. You can see this in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4, and in Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. So in other words, God always comes on a cloud to the Jews in the Old Testament, and Jesus, not only in his divinity, but also in his humanity, will come on this cloud of glory. And this is, of course, an allusion to chapter 7, verse 13 of the book of Daniel. And lo, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Then we have these words, with much power and majesty. Christ will return on that last day with much power and majesty. Father Lapide points out in Greek that this is with great strength and glory. And then in Luke 21, 27, that's just a parallel verse to this, with great power, it says. And he says, For as Christ, at his first advent or coming, came into the world in great infirmity of the flesh and poverty and contempt, so he has thereby merited to come in his second advent or second coming with great strength, glory, and majesty. Christ's might and strength shall appear in that at his command all the dead shall arise in a moment, and that all men, angels, and devils shall behold and worship him as their God, their Lord, and their judge, in that he shall pass sentence upon all according to their merits, and shall execute his sentence so that none shall dare to contradict or resist it. His majesty shall appear in the infinite splendor of his body, and the multitude and brightness of all the angels accompanying him, and his garments of radiant color, clouds, also in the trumpets, thunder, lightning, and earthquakes that shall precede him. Again, this is a lot to bring to your mental prayer, to your imaginative way of prayer, but I suggest that you do it. You picture Christ in all of his majesty, appearing in the infinite splendor of his body, says Father Lapide, in the multitude and brightness of all the angels accompanying him. And why do we use the imaginative way of prayer? Because some generation of Christians, we don't know which generation, it might be in the year 21,548, or it could be in the year 2024, some generation of Christians, and yeah, I know everyone always points out, oh, every generation of Christians thought that they were going to be it. Yeah, we make fun of those people in the past who thought it was them who weren't, 
But some generation is going to be them who are on their front yard and they are going to see Christ appear in his body in his multitude and brightness of all the angels accompanying him. And it says, his garments will be radiant clouds. And what will you hear? This is why in the imaginative way you actually use even sound. You're going to hear trumpets and thunder. You're going to see lightning. You're going to feel earthquakes that precede him at his glorious coming. And keep in mind when it says that all men and angels and devils shall behold and worship him, that doesn't mean that devils will enjoy worshiping him. It's almost like even though devils have an angelic nature and they don't have kneecaps, of course, somehow they're going to almost be forced to bend the knee, even if it's a spiritual knee, at Christ at this coming. Since we know, I think it's Philippians, it says, every knee shall bend at the name of Jesus, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. And why is that? That is because, as Father Lapide says, that none shall dare to contradict or resist him. Verse 31 reads, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Father Lapide says, There is an inversion of order in this passage, for Christ shall previously send his angels with a trumpet, or rather with many trumpets, throughout the whole world, to call the dead and the buried to life and summon them to judgment. For when this trumpet sounds, great numbers of angels shall gather together the ashes of every one of the dead, and from them, from the semblance of human bodies, which God shall organize and animate, and after they have been restored to life, he shall, if they be holy and elect, glorify and bless them. Therefore also the blessed themselves shall, by the gift of agility, with which they shall be endowed, immediately transfer themselves with the angels accompanying or leading them from all parts of the world to the valley of Josephat to judgment, but the reprobate, because they shall lack the gift of agility, shall be dragged thither by the devils, or rather by the angels. So for most of her history, and I would say still now, because the Catholic Church can't technically change her teaching, the Catholic Church has always been against cremation. Now the easy comeback to something like this is, well, what do you think of someone like St. Maximilian Kolbe? Do you believe God can't gather the dust from him being burnt in Auschwitz, the dust of his body being scattered across all the planet, maybe in outer space? Of course we as Catholics believe that even someone that was uh, burnt at Auschwitz, whose dust in, is all over the galaxy, of course God can reconstitute even the body of St. Maximilian Kolbe, and by analogy, anyone who's been cremated. The problem, however, with cremation is it has always been seen, even if it's not directly, it's always been seen implicitly as an act against the resurrection of the body. That's why we don't do it. That is why you should be buried. Again, it doesn't mean that God can't reconstitute in the general resurrection of the body anyone who's been cremated, but the church has always taught doing that is an act of faith against the resurrection of the body. So I highly suggest you be buried at the end of your life. And then how about this line, the four winds? Father Lapide says, the horizon appears to be the limit of both earth and heaven as though earth were coupled with the heaven there and heaven ceased bending over the earth and actually set foot on the ground. There is no reason why the farthest parts of the heavens in this place should not be taken literally, meaning that the angels shall gather together the elect wherever they may be, whether in heaven or earth, for the bodies of the patriarchs who rose again with Christ are in heaven. Therefore, they shall descend from the valley of Josephat at the time of the last judgment. And then verse 32 and verse 33, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
Father Lapide says that symbolically, therefore, by the fig tree, Christ would intimate that his saints and elect ought to bring forth most sweet and abundant fruits of good works, so that they may merit to taste in the summer of the resurrection the abundant sweetness of celestial glory for all eternity. For redemption signifies deliverance from all evil and miseries. This will be the harvest time, and after the winter there shall come this most joyful summer to all the elect, as the parable intimates. Just as when the fig comes into leaf, summer is nigh, which produces the most sweet figs and other fruits, so too, when you shall behold the elect flourishing with such great patience in the winter of such great tribulations, as shall befall them at the end of the world, know that the reward of your patience is nigh at hand. So this is one reason I talk about the church crisis so much, that we are in the winter of Catholicism, but it is the people who are persevering in this great tribulation who are going to be these figs that wake up from this wintertime into the summertime of the glorious resurrection of the body. And then verse 34, And then I say to you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Father Lapide points out clearly this generation is to say of all men or this age, which shall be unto the end of the world, so says St. Jerome. That just means the New Testament. So again, Christ could return sometime in the year what did I say, 20,488, or he could return in 2024. But by this generation shall not pass, that simply means this dispensation, which is the New Testament. There's no more dispensations besides the New Testament. That's the era of dispensationalism. We are in the final era, which is the New Testament, and the very next era is the resurrection of the body. That doesn't negate the seven epochs of the church that we talked about from Venerable Bartholomew, but it just says the very last time is this apostolic time before Christ returns, and that's the entire New Testament time that you and I are currently in. And then the last verse, which I named this VLX after, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And what that means is that heaven and earth will pass away at the end of time, but Christ's kingdom will continue forever, including all the saints and angels who obeyed Christ. May you be one of them, may I be one of them. Please say an hour, Father, for me, at benedictio Dei omnipotentis. Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti descendit super vos et maniat semper. Amen.